0: This morning we're going to look at a note from Jesus to the church in a town called Sardis. It's six verses in our Bible, 143 words in the Greek, if I counted correctly. Easy, right? No problem. Six verses, 143 words. Maybe for a Greek-speaking person living 1,900 years ago in the city of Sardis, but not so much for this non-Greek-speaking person current day dweller 1,900 years later. Before we start, let's pray. Lord, um, I appreciate the effort that you've put in in writing this book, this whole book to us. I, um, it amazes me that you are mindful of us, that you care, that you communicated to us. You could have just wiped us out in the beginning. You could have dealt with us like you dealt with those angels so many millennia ago. But you didn't. You're full of love. You're full of grace. Lord, um, just help us see that love and grace this morning as we dig into this note to the church in Sardis. Amen. Well, I've titled this message, Where Are You? Where are you? And... um, 15, uh, first a little background. I know we've had this in the first, in the first, uh, message or two of this series, but a little bit, a little bit of background. Um, 1900 years ago, that's when this, uh, when this, when this letter, the letter of Revelation was written about 1900 years ago. And when we study our Bibles in junior high, I like to get the background on what we're studying, answer questions like who, what, when, where, why, how. This series on the seven churches represents a portion of a larger work, the, the book or the letter uh, that we commonly call the Revelation. In turn, that Revelation is part of a larger work, the New Testament, uh, which uh, is again finally part of the larger context, the Bible. Additionally, each particular writing or book within the Bible has a particular setting and an initial audience. And those things are all important to us. And as you've seen so far in the other four churches, Ron has gone through some of that background and some of that, that history for you. Then there are other considerations if you, um, if you get out the commentaries and look through them that, that the scholars uh, look at. And there are things like, what's the style of the writing? What's the genre or... or uh, type and um, in our present case we're looking at a portion of the book of revelation and from the introduction a few weeks back uh, we know that the that the revelation is a letter in revelation 1 4 it says jesus to the seven churches that are in asia that sounds like a letter to me right Scholars like to debate genre, however, and they say that this one—well, it's kind of mixed. It's part—it's part epistle. That's a fancy word they like to use for genre, uh, for a letter, and it's—it's um, it's also apocalyptic. They like to—I guess they're kind of like doctors. They like to confuse us by using these. Actually, they're not. They're just so familiar with these other languages that these words just kind of come out. But the word. Apocalypse, we borrow that in English, we borrow it directly from the Greek, and it's the very first word of the book of Revelation, and it means revelation. In fact, that's the way it's probably translated in most of your translations. In a verse, okay, verse 1. So Jesus is um, going to reveal things to us, and he says there are things that are going to happen soon. That's like the subject line in an email. Re-coming events. Right? Re-coming events. So why is Jesus sending this letter to the seven churches of Asia about coming events? And why didn't he just send chapters 4 through 21, five, twenty-two five? I mean, those are really the, the bulk of the visions about the future and what's going to happen. Why did he include chapters 1 through 3? Why did he write these personal little notes to the seven churches? And then there's an epilogue at the end. Why did he, why did he write that? Remember the first sermon in the series? Anybody remember the first sermon in this series? Ron put a, a graphic up. I think it was a picture of a phone was a text message. Anybody remember that? Somebody raise your hand. Nobody remembers. You remember? You remember? You, oh, you just raise your hand. Uh, okay. He helps me in junior high. He's used to doing what I say, right? Um, uh, uh, the, the text message said something like, or it was a calendar, right? Performance review today. I don't live in that world, so I don't know how bosses send you performance reviews. I get them every day when I show up on the job, and they say, there's a little missing spot in the paint over here, or that piece of wood has a little gouge in it. Um, performance review today. Ron, Ron likened the, le- the seven notes of the seven churches to a performance review. When I've taught this before, I like to look at it more like halftime locker room talk. I think uh, what we have is the church in the middle of a game and uh, they're going through it. They're not doing very well. And so God takes them in the locker room and says, i got a few things to talk to you about. Now, I don't know anything about sports. You can ask my wife. Um, so I can't give you any particular illustrations. But I'm, I'm sure that if you know sports, you can conjure up some. You can just imagine... That, that, uh, what a coach says when guys are dropping passes or not blocking or whatever it is. And I like to look at, uh, liken this to a halftime talk, a little encouragement, but it's more. Because all the coach can do is hope and wish and, and maybe even pray that the team's going to do better in the second half. But in this case, the rest of the book of Revelation, chapters 4 through 22, 5, Actually, show us the end of the game. And the coach knows how the game's going to turn out, and it's going to turn out very well for his team. So, remember the setting, though, of Revelation when it was written. It was written about 95 AD. The seven churches are in Asia Minor. I don't have the fancy little pointer. I thought about bringing my laser measuring thing because it would have pointed up there. But if you see the word Asia and go down, you'll see Philadelphia. And if you go across, you'll see Sardis between Smyrna and Philadelphia. All right. These seven churches were in Asia Minor. We don't know much about these churches. We don't know when they really started, uh, who started them, except for Ephesus. In 53 AD, Paul was on his third missionary journey. And he was visiting churches over in the area where it says Galatia, Cappadocia. And he traveled across and went to Ephesus. I don't even think... Oh, yeah, Ephesus is on there. And um, in Ephesus, he found 12 devout men. Uh, who, and he he met with them, Jews. And he found them, and he spoke with them. And they were disciples of a guy named Apollos. And Apollos evidently was a disciple of John the Baptist. And so they knew all about what John the Baptist had said. You know, repent, the Lamb of God is coming, you know, and all this stuff. But um, be baptized and repent. But that's all they had heard. And so Paul proceeded to show them the truth about Jesus Christ to which they responded. And the church in Ephesus was born about 53 A.D. For about the next decade... um, there, uh, the churches in that, in that area grew, uh, it, but about a decade later, a new Roman emperor came on the scene, a guy named Nero. Nero uh, was persecuting Christians over in Rome off the map. So, well, actually, that's Greece, so it's even further off the map, uh, about halfway to the tree, I suppose. Anyway, he's persecuting, he's persecuting Christians in Rome. Some of them fled Rome and they spread out throughout the empire, tried to get away, find some more peaceful places. But this area, Asia Minor, not so much trouble. It was kind of calm. And so from 53 A.D. to 95 A.D., these churches grew up. Ephesus, obviously, somebody spread the news and churches were planted in these other seven churches, in other seven cities, And grew to the point where we see them in the Revelation. Forty years, 40 years of um, maybe a little trouble, maybe some missionary efforts, but pretty easy time. There was uh, not official persecution, but there was local persecution. The Jews uh, did not like the Christians. They thought that they were perverting the true religion. And so they would give them trouble. Many of the early believers were Jewish. Most of the believers in this area were probably not, were non-Jews or Gentiles. However, the, um, uh, the Jewish influence was still felt, and there were still Jewish believers, Jewish people who had come to believe in Christ. So, around uh, in... I um, don't know the year he started... But in 95 A.D., there was an emperor named Domitian. And some historians like to say he was a pretty cool guy. He was uh, kind of mild or whatever. But near the end of his reign, he got more and more hostile, especially towards Christians. And um, in 96 A.D., he was assassinated. And a guy named Trajan took over. Well, this is 95 A.D. This is right at the uh, end of his life, his career. And so he's being hostile and um, and Trajan took over. When Trajan took over, there was a governor in the area of Asia Minor, and his name was Pliny the Younger, and he um, w- corresponded quite a bit. We have a lot of his letters, and he wrote to Trajan about the Christians and was talking about how he would get them and torture them, and if they wouldn't renounce Christ, he would kill them, unless they were Roman citizens, and he didn't want to get in trouble for killing Roman citizens. And so there was persecution during this time, first from Domitian, and then from Pliny. So on the one hand, we had believers who had lived fairly relaxed lives with respect to their faith. On the other hand, we see increasing hostility and persecution. It was in this setting that Jesus stepped in with the seven notes of instruction and a letter filled with an eternal perspective. So then we come to Sardis. We've seen in previous messages a sort of pattern to the seven notes. Um, In each of these notes, we see Jesus, the Christ, He addresses a particular church in a way that's meaningful to the church. Um, he, He speaks to their particular their particular situation. And in each of these, we have looked so in each of these letters we've looked at the Christ. We've looked at the church, the city. We've seen both condemnation and commendation or criticism. And well, commendation and condemnation, criticism, and we've also seen correction or command. that's the pattern. And then finally, a promise, a conqueror 's promise. So what about the city of Sardis? Turn with me to the third chapter in the revelation. Revelation three one, and put your finger there. The city the city, of, and I 'm going to turn around here so I can see the slides too. The city of Sardis um, was founded about 1200 BC, and it's the fifth of the seven churches. 1200 BC, think the time of the judges. Okay, 1200 BC. It was situated on a major road from the Persian Empire over to the, west, uh, to the Persian Empire in the east, obviously, towards the west. The road ran towards the west. It was on the major road. Slide two. Oh, that is slide two. Okay. It was the capital of a rich kingdom, the kingdom of Lydia. I had no idea you owned so much land, Lydia, yes. Um, Nice place, good-looking place. Uh, The people, not so much. Anyway, the actual city, let's go to the next slide, was built on this precipice on the slope of Mount Mount Tomalus, and it was inaccessible except for a road to the south. On the other three sides... They had these steep, sheer 1,500-foot cliffs. That's where the original city was, the capital of Lydia. um, Eventually, the city outgrew this rocky perch, and it spread into the fertile valley below. Next slide, oh, I can turn around. Yeah, next slide, okay. No, not in the next slide, this one. Uh, It spread to the valley below. It's kind of urban sprawl back in 1200 or 1000 or whenever this all happened. And in times of trouble, however, the citizens would retreat back to that original site. Agriculture was not the only wealth. There was also gold in this region. In fact, Sardis was the first city to ever mint gold and silver coins. Jewelry was an important industry. Sardis also claimed to be the place where they figured out how to dye wool. Before then, I guess, everybody just wore gray wool and they figured out how to dye wool. The most famous king of the Lydian Empire was a guy named Croesus. He was renowned for his wealth in the Greek world. According to Greek legend, Midas attempted to rid himself of his golden power and washed in a river that flows through the region, um, the Pactolus River. And so there was a lot of gold in the area. They made gold coins. It was a rich place. This rich king. Wealth and security, however, lead to complacency. And in 4, uh, 546, Cyrus, and you can realize that's the guy from the book of Ezra, Cyrus, king of the Persian Empire, was sweeping across the, uh, the world, Asia Minor, headed for Greece. And Croesus, croesus son, Croesus's army, they decided to attack Cyrus, they fought with him, and winter approached, and then the way kings were in those days, oh, it's winter, let's go home, we'll get back together and fight again next spring, right? So um, Croesus's army and his son started to retreat back to um, Sardis. and Cyrus didn't do what he was supposed to do. He pursued them. And he wiped out Croesus's cavalry, and they all ran up on the hill and hid out. Oh, no problem. We're in Sardis. Nobody can get to us. All so we have to do is guard that little road there down south, and we're good. They didn't even bother guarding the other sides of the city. Nobody can climb up those rocks. Well, unfortunately, Cyrus did have a guy that climbed the 1,500-foot cliff, snuck in. Nobody was watching. Snuck in and opened the gates from the inside and let Cyrus and his army in. 14 days later, the city fell, and uh, Crocius, um Croesus' kingdom came to an end. Cyrus made the city his capital, and it was the capital of the Persian Empire. Um, they say that if we don't remember history, we're doomed to repeat it. And about, let's see, that was 546. About two, three hundred years later, the Romans were sweeping across the world and deciding they wanted to rule everything. And they came to Sardis, and whoever was in charge of Sardis at the time, they all ran up to the hill, locked the gates and said, no problem, you're never getting in here. And Antiochus Third had a guy that was able to climb up the cliffs, open the gate, let him in, and the city fell to Antiochus Third. The Romans, they decided that they didn't like this city, it wasn't going to be the capital, and so this former rich Capital, famous city, impregnable, became a, a by a byword, and the capital was moved to Pergamum by the Romans. the uh, The loss of the capital in Croesus' time was so shocking to people that um, that the phrase taken like Sardis became a way for for communicating doing the impossible in the Greek. In the Greek vernacular, Sardis continued to exist. Um, the people of Sardis, the people of Sardis, worshipped the goddess Sybil, who also went by the name or identify was identified with Artemis, the same gal that we met back in Ephesus. King Croesus built, had built a large temple to Artemis, which was destroyed in 499 BC. Reconstruction was eventually started, but never finished. In A.D. 17, there was an earthquake that destroyed both Sardis and Philadelphia. Sardis was rebuilt with a lot of help from then, then emperor of the Roman Empire, Augustus. And they honored him by minting a coin with his with his likeness on it. And it, and it said, Caesarian, Sardis, Caesar. They were um, saying, our city belongs to you, king. In 26 A.D., Sardis petitioned the Roman government to build a temple to Caesar. But unfortunately, the honor went to Smyrna. Sardis also seems to have had a real preoccupation with death and rebirth, especially as seen in the fertility cycle. You see all the plants around, people in the ancient world, they recognize oh, winter's coming, things die, we need to grow things. And so they they sort of recognize this fertility cycle and they thought the gods controlled it and Oh, look, uh, the gods are unhappy, things are cold, let's make the gods happy, they'll make things warm again, we'll get lots of plants. They had a world, they also had a world, and that's in this slide, a world-famous necropolis or graveyard. They were just preoccupied with death. You can't really see it too well, but there's all these little mounds out there, which were places where people were buried, and there were thousands of people buried there. I don't know if I'd want to be a city that was famous for my graveyard but that was their deal they also had a hot springs about two miles from town where they honored the god of the underworld so now let's go to the letter of sardis that's a little history and when i read this there's a lot of irony in the letter um, based on all of that and that's why i bothered taking the time to explain a little bit about sardis to you so uh, pick up your bibles let's take a look here and unfortunately i don't have an esv so if mine's a little different i'm sorry a lot of you are reading esvs but it says to the angel of the church to the angel of the church in sardis write he was the seven spirits of god and the seven stars says this i know your deeds that you have a name yes a name right that you are alive yes alive but you're dead Wake up and strengthen the things that remain, which are about to die, for I have not found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. So remember what you have received and heard, and keep it and repent. Therefore, if you do not wake up, I will continue, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come to you. But you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy." He who overcomes, thus will be clothed in white garments. And I will not erase his name from the book of life. And I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So first we see the Christ in this letter. And how does Jesus identify himself? As I said, after reading the inter- um. After uh, re- uh, reading the background for this note, I was impressed by the irony in it. That's to say, the strong parallels between life and the heritage of Sardis and what Jesus has to say about them. As we've seen in previous letters or notes to the first four churches, Jesus uses images of himself to establish uh, that he established in the first chapter to relate to each church. The images are appropriate to the situation in which we find each church. So these aren't just some random random, uh, images that Christ is using. They relate to what's going on and what he has to say to Sardis. In this case, we see Jesus holding two things. He's holding the seven spirits of God, and he's holding the seven stars. Now you may remember from the first lesson that the seven spirits of God, or the sevenfold spirit, is a reference to the Holy Spirit. That comes from usage in this book. Revelation five six talks about the seven spirits of God that were before the throne, and also in the Old Testament, Isaiah two. Um, now, if you go back and read Isaiah two, which I did, I read Isaiah two because we were saying, "Well, this is the Holy Spirit." This, the sevenfold spirit of God. And so I went back to Isaiah 2 and I said, and there was a list, but there were only six things. And I said, well, how do they get seven out of this? There's only six. Did they make one up or something? But um, in Jesus' time and in the book of Revelation, they used a translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint. And the Septuagint was written in Greek. And in Isaiah 2, in the Septuagint, there is a seventh characteristic. Um, we use a translation that comes from a text called the Masoretic Text. Well, primarily it's supported by a text called the Masoretic Text. And in that text, it doesn't have that seventh one. The seventh one was godliness. And that would certainly be a characteristic of God, I suppose, wouldn't it? So the whole, um, and it doesn't really change the meaning of Isaiah 2. At any rate, that would have been probably the Bible... The Old Testament that John would have been familiar with and um, certainly the seven the sevenfold spirit is a um, could be could refer to that also Zechariah 4:2 through10 um, and gives sheds light on this and Ron talked about that in the first message the seven stars that's a little bit easier so we have the Holy Spirit in his hand and then we have the seven stars that one's easy because in Revelation 1:10, John explains to us what the seven uh the seven stars are they're the seven messengers of the church actually it's revelation 120 they're the seven messengers to the messenger of the church of Sardis right okay so we have the seven messengers one for each church now the commentators like to debate oh are these real angels because in the greek the word is angels or are they and as Ron, uh, d- uh, explained it, he feels that they're the pastors or the leaders of the church. The word, the, the Greek word for angel, agaloi, I think is how you would say it. That's how I would say it. Maybe I just don't read well, but, um, comes from a Greek word, ago, which means, which means to lead. And so, um, these, uh, these, these are probably men, the leaders of the church, as Ron said. But whether they're angels, or pastors, or elders, or something else, I think that we're missing the point if we don't consider that they're messengers, that they're bringing God's Word to us. I think that's the real issue here we have to make sure that we realize that Jesus is communicating a message here now they're in Jesus's hand I went through and looked up all of the usages of the word hand in the New Testament and in the New Testament the hand represents power and authority we see things like putting your hand to the plow to push the plow Um, we also see dozens of miracles that Jesus did where he reached out his hand and he took hold of someone and a great miracle of healing was done. So, we see that the hand represents power and authority. And mostly we do see Jesus using his hands to heal. But they are also used in judgment, like in Luke 3.17. Luke in John 10, 28 and 29, it says, And I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of My hand. My Father who has given them to Me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I think we see kind of a third thing about the hand here, and we don't want to miss this, and that's that it represents security. Security. It represents power, and it represents authority, but it represents security. I think, in fact, um, that the Holy Spirit and these messengers are in Jesus' hand shows us that their ministry involves all of these elements. It involves healing, protection, security, judgment, all with power and authority. So that's the Christ. He's holding the messengers. He's holding the Holy Spirit. So what about what's going on in the church? I said that there were these this pattern. Usually in the pattern, the next thing is commendation, what they've done right. But in this one, it doesn't happen that way. Jesus just starts in on what they're doing wrong. The church of Sardis had quite a reputation. Everyone was impressed with them. They were so alive. But Jesus declares that they're dead. I think at this point, it's important to think about the biblical concept of life and death. Now, one popular opinion of death is that it's annihilationism. You just cease to exist. But from a biblical standpoint, that's totally inadequate. In Revelation 6-9, John had a vision of an altar in heaven. And underneath the altar were the souls of those who had been killed for believing in Jesus. Guess what? They're dead, right? They've been killed. They're dead. In verse 10, they begin to cry out. In Revelation 24, we see a similar of not the same souls. We see similar if not the same souls coming back to life. And especially relevant to our discussion is 1 Thessalonians 4 13 and 17, where Paul uses the image of sleep to describe death. He also contrasts death with life. The concept here is not of destruction. The biblical concept of death and life of death is separation. In Genesis 2-7, you see the more detailed account of the creation of Adam. And what does God do? He reaches down he takes some dirt. He spoke everything else into existence. But he reached down and he took some dirt. And he molded a little man. A little man named Adam. Sit the little man down. And he just stood there. Like a little statue. I had a teacher in college. I was an engineering student. And the teacher in college thermodynamics class, he said, if we could put on special glasses, and I gave you a box of molecules, and you could look in there and see the molecules, and you could pick out all the molecules you wanted, whatever molecules you wanted, And you could put them together. And I gave you a model over here, a human being. And you could make another human being out of those molecules. When you put the last molecule in, would it be alive? And the class thought about it. And they said, um, some people said, uh, well, maybe if you shocked it. Yeah, that's what makes things alive. Applying some electricity to it. Maybe they just watched too many Frankenstein movies. I don't know. But... I was sitting over in the side, and everybody was saying, well, maybe, yeah, probably you might have to push it a little or something, flick it, I don't know. I said, no. And he started dancing around. He came over and he looked at me and he said, well, why not? I was a struggling Christian at the time. God was trying to get me back squared away. I guess maybe I was like one of these seven churches... But I was struggling, and I was reading my Bible, and I was doing things to try to get my walk with God fixed. And I remembered the story in Genesis of God making Adam out of the dirt. And that came to my mind, and I thought, no. And he asked me, why not? And I said, because it wouldn't have a soul. And he said to me, what's a soul? I said, I have no idea. But it wouldn't have one. (laughs) So it wouldn't be alive. Um, It wasn't until God breathed on Adam that he became a living soul. He put a soul in Adam or spirit. Don't ask me about that one. (laughs) I don't know. Um, Are we two parts? Are we three? What is it? Um, But uh, the idea of life is the idea of union, I think. The idea of death is the idea of separation or disunion. Now, that's physical life. We also see in that same story about Adam and Eve... um, Oh... Let's go back to uh, Paul for a minute in 2 Corinthians 5, 6-8. through 8, Paul makes the same sort of distinction when he talks about being absent from the body, talking about being dead, but being present with God in the form of his soul. So I think, again, that we need to think of, of life and death and, and maybe in the terms of union and disunion. Not only do we see this idea with respect to our bodies and our souls, physical life, but back to the story about Adam and Eve... In Genesis 2, 16 and 17, God informed Adam, look at this beautiful creation I made for you. You can have anything you want to eat here, except that over there. Don't eat it. The day you eat it, you will surely die. Well, you may know the story. The devil in the form of a serpent, snake thing came down, talked to Eve. Uh, Got her convinced that she wouldn't die. That was a nice thing to eat. That she should probably eat it. She took some of the fruit, gave some to Adam. They ate and um, disobeyed God. But what's missing from the story? Did Adam take a bite and fall over dead? No. Did Eve take a bite and start coughing and gagging and fall over dead? No. No. They went on about their business that day. Oh, except that they knew that they were naked, so they grabbed some leaves and made some clothes. That afternoon, God came walking through the garden. I don't know what God's footsteps sound like, but something crunch, crunch, crunch leaves, I don't know. But they heard him and they hid. And then God said something amazing Where are you? Adam, where are you? Now, if you are in the last series, you know that's such a ridiculous question because God knows everything. God sees everything. God knew where Adam was. There's no place in existence that you can go and hide from God. But see, the book wasn't written for God. The book was written for you and me and for Adam and Eve and for everybody. And so God is pointing out to Adam that there's something different now. He's saying to Adam, we're no longer friends. We're estranged. There's no fellowship. There's no union here. That's spiritual death. So we have physical death, the separation of the body and the soul. We have spiritual death, the separation of the soul from God. And one more passage before we get back to Sardis, James 2. In James 2, James tells us that faith without the right kind of deeds, deeds that that show the faith, is useless. He uses the term dead. If we really believe in Jesus, we need to live like it. It needs to show our actions in, in our actions towards others. And that's what James talks about in James 2 any kind of faith that doesn't affect how we act he tells us is dead so back to sardis and sardis we see Jesus talking to the church and he says they're dead but in what way clearly they're alive physically he's talking to them although he did talk to some dead people on occasion and they came back alive what about spiritually well with respect to salvation he does call them a church to the messenger in the church of Sardis, right? And then he goes on to talk to these people. He calls them a church. The Greek word for church is ekklesia. It's a a compound word. It means called out of, called from. These people have been called out of the world by Jesus. And they had responded. It's kind of like standing on the playground and everybody lines up and you pick the two coolest dudes and they become the captains of the team. And one says... I'll take Stephen. And then it says, I'll take Phil. And then, last, they say, Oh, I'll take Myron. Remember, I'm pathetic at sports. (laughs) All right. So, these people were called and they had responded to be on God's team. So, what does it mean that they were dead? It's just possible that these people truly were believers, spiritually alive. In the end of verse 2, we see that their deeds have not been finished. Much like the people in James, who say they have faith, but are not backing it up with their lives. At least those in Sardis had some sort of activity going on, though they had not followed through. So perhaps what we have here is a dead faith, not necessarily spiritually dead souls. So then we come to the command or the correction. I love God's love because He wants us to be right. He wants it fixed. In verse 2, Jesus tells them to wake up and to strengthen the things that were about to die. So what things are these? Well, the rest of the verse is about their incomplete works. It's interesting... How when we value something, we invest a lot of time in caring for it. We value a car, so we clean and wax it. We value ideology, so when a symbol of it crashes to the ground, we consider how we can restore it. We value a relationship or an agony when it is broken. In Sardis, they had a deity to who they had pledged allegiance. but here, But her temple sat in ruins for 500 years and is still in ruins today. Jesus is telling them to get up and finish the works they had begun. Finish them the way God wants them finished. In verse 3, oop. In verse 3, we see Jesus call them to remember what they have received and heard. It's interesting how the commentators have different ideas about what that is. What they have received and heard. Some say, "Oh, they received the apostle's message." "Oh, they received Jesus Christ." Oh, they've heard the teaching of the apostles. They've heard the teaching of the messengers or their pastors or their leaders. One commentator that I especially appreciated mentioned how this is sort of in an opposite order if it's going to be talking about salvation. Normally we talk about salvation. You know, in, in Romans it says, um, how, how shall they hear without a preacher? How shall they believe unless they've heard? And how shall they hear unless someone brings... The message to them. And so the normal order is that we hear and then we believe, or we hear and then we receive, but in this one, the order is back, backwards. And I think back to the point that Jesus presents himself in a way that's relevant to what is going on in their lives. He holds the messengers, the church, and the Holy Spirit. And so the, um, one commentator said, I really think. That what we have here is a reference back to the Holy Spirit. What you've received. Because the Bible teaches that that when you put your faith in Christ, that you're sealed with the Holy Spirit. He comes into your life and takes control of your life. They had received the Holy Spirit. You know, in John, the the same author of uh, this book, in his Gospel, he says that the Holy Spirit is there to help us remember what Jesus taught us. So, in the hearing, you may be, have the receiving of the Holy Spirit and hearing what the Holy Spirit has to say. But I don't think we need to be that limited. I think it, it, it's both and. I think we've received the Holy Spirit. That fits the picture of Christ. Remember what you've received. You received the Holy Spirit. In Acts 1.8, Jesus told His followers but you will receive um, power. Talking about the Holy Spirit. And you will be my witnesses both in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and even to the uttermost parts of the earth. So Jesus tells his, them to remember what they had received, perhaps the Holy Spirit, and what they had heard, all of it, all of the teaching about Jesus. Of course, the ministry of teaching... Oh, yes, we've done that. So like the church in Ephesus, they needed to remember not the love they had once had, as with that church, but the devotion and zeal and the power of the Holy Spirit. They needed to lay aside there, I remember when. I remember when Midas came. I remember when Croesus was king. I remember when we chased Cyrus. Of course, he chased us back. I don't want to remember those things. But I remember, I remember. This was a city living in its past. And Jesus is telling them to Remember. And to get up and finish the work they had begun. They needed to rebuild the temple of their lives and allow the Holy Spirit to empower them again. Verse 3 ends with a warning If you don't wake up, I'm coming quickly like a thief. And you won't know when. That image is used, um, that image of Jesus coming like a thief is used several times in the New Testament. And it's always about judgment, about the end times about Jesus taking over the world, about the last days. There are warnings to believers or potential believers like in Revelation 16-15 to be awake and aware and living God-pleasing lives. Of particular interest is 1 Thessalonians 5.19 where he talks about coming like a thief where the believers are encouraged not to quench the spirit in in that passage. They're, taught, they're given a little tune-up too in First Thessalonians. Don't quench the Spirit. It's like dumping water on a fire. You've got the fire of the Spirit in you. Don't put it out. And not to despise po- po- prophetic utterances. Again, the teaching. Don't put out the Holy Spirit. And don't despise the teaching. Very similar to what John may have been telling the dead church in Sardis. There was a con- condemnation. There is a bright point in this note, however, and that comes in verse 4 where he says, But you have a few people in Sardis who have not sold their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. In, um, in the Bible, and I've got to speed it up a little bit here, in the Bible the white garments are symbolic of the righteous acts of the saints. Okay. Later in Revelation it talks about that. The right deeds, the right kinds of things, honoring God with their lives. There were people who had not soiled their garment. There were some people in this church who were living the right lives. And they would walk with him in white. He said they were worthy. They were worthy. And then he says, He who overcomes will thus be clothed in white. And um, I wish I had an NIV translation here. Because in the NIV and some of the commentators, sometimes they're scholars and some of the publishers have them write their commentaries, have them do their own translation. And in several of the commentaries that I read, um, their translation was very similar to what's in the NIV. And it says, um, uh, he who overcomes like them will be clothed in white. And they're drawing a contrast. There's a contrast here look, the people who were faithful for were already dressed in white. Their clothes aren't soiled. They were going to walk with Jesus in white. I think that this is talking to the rest. The ones who were the screw-ups. The ones who were asleep. The ones who hadn't finished their works. And he says, they will be clothed in white garments. In um, Later in the book of Revelation, we see the bride. The bride is an image of the church, of true believers in Christ. We see that from Ephesians. That the bride is us. And we see Jesus clothing us in white. See, our righteousness, our good deeds, the way we act that pleases God, it's not from us. It comes from God. The book of, the book of Romans chapter 3 talks about that. That we don't please God by our deeds. We need help. That's why God had to die on a cross. That's why He had to shed His blood and take the punishment for my evil deeds, so that I could be clean, so that God could look at me and say, you deserve to be punished, but Jesus took the punishment. That will satisfy you, me. Now you've, you're a suitable place for the Holy Spirit to live. I'm going to send my spirit. Because the whole history of the Old Testament is that we're not suitable. We don't get it. We screw up. When we're left alone, when we're given the rules, no matter what we try to do on our own, we fall short. For all have sinned. And fall short of God's perfection. We needed help. And we were dirty. And Jesus washed us. And Jesus cleaned us. And He made us a place for the Holy Spirit to live. And the Holy Spirit comes in us and He empowers us. And He teaches us. And that is what these people needed to finish their deeds. To overcome. They needed the Holy Spirit. And they needed God's Word. And they needed that power in them and they needed to yield to that power. They needed to wake up and finish their deeds. And Jesus would clothe them in white garments. It's all about Him, isn't it? He does that for us. And then we come to maybe one of the most sticky points of His promise. And I will not erase His name from the book of life. And I will confess His name before my Father, and before His angels. Now this book of life um, probably first appears in Psalm 69. Uh, Some people think that it appears in Exodus. Anyway, where Moses talks about, hey God, if these people, if you can't relent and not punish these Israelites, then blot my name out of the book. Some people think that's the book of life. It's not called the book of life. Probably first appears in Psalm 69. It's a few other places in the New Testament. And um, especially in Revelation 20, where we see the book of life opened. And there it's called the book of life of the Lamb. And we see the other books open, the book of their deeds. It's kind of funny how commentators can be. They said, I don't think there's any real books. I think that that's just an idea for us i 'm thinking, no, I think there's real books, not because God needs a book because uh, you know he 's obviously savant, he can remember everything, um, all the names of all the telephone books in all the world, all at the same time, but I think there are books for me and for you. I mean, I can just imagine somebody standing on the white throne, they open the book and there 's no books and God says, no i don 't remember you really ever receiving Jesus Christ as your Savior. Uh, but I do remember you doing this and this and this." Somebody's saying, I don't know. I don't think you remember so good. You got something written down somewhere? Show me. I mean, that's ridiculous, but that's how we are, aren't we? Um, So there are books. There's the book of life and the book of the deeds. And the book of life. He says, I will not blot your name out of the book of life. Now, what is that about? Well, some people say, Oh, that means that you can get unsaved. You're in the book of life. You're a believer. You're a Christian. Oh, you got your name scratched out now. You're not a Christian. Well, think about what the definition of life and death was: union and disunion. In John three sixteen, uh, John tells us, "For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life." Eternal life. In 1 John five one through thirteen. Uh, John says, The witness is this, that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son does not have the life. These things I've written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God are that you may know that you have eternal life eternal life it's not a thing it's not an eternal gobstopper in um in Willy Wonka's factory that never go never loses its flavor and never wears out it's a relationship with god and you can't lose it it's forever it's not a thing it's a relationship and it doesn't go away oops but this sermon needs to go away <laughs> In the ancient times, Moses' book was a book of all the Israelites, the chosen people. It was a record of who they are. Think First Chronicles here. I hate that book. Name after name after name. But it's important because it shows who's enrolled, who's a part of the group. In Sardis, in these ancient Asiatic cities, they had a register. When you were born, your name went down there. When you died, they scratched your name off. I think I have at least one guy one commentator that you would respect that agrees with me and I talked to Ron too so. <laughs> um, I think that what we have in the book of life is a book that had every single name of every single human being that's ever been born or unborn, I guess, since we kill so many of them before they're born. Every single human being's name went in that book. Remember, the books are for us. I think God wrote every name down. It says He wrote the Lamb's Book of Life that was written before the foundation of the world. Before any of this mess, God wrote every name down. And then, and He watches our lives. Remember, this is a picture for us. It's not the reality of God's existence. It's for us. He wrote the names down and He's constantly calling. Joe, where are you? Cookie, where are you? Myron, where are you? 1 Peter 3 tells us God is not willing that any should perish but that all should come to repentance. Now we know they don't. You read the end of the book of Revelation, they don't. A bunch of people get sent into the lake of fire. Their names are not written in the book of life. But I believe it's because they did not respond in life. God called them and called them, and they ran away. It's interesting that the word blot is is a form of the word to anoint. You know, to smear something on something. And I wonder if it's God's tears that blot out our names from the book of life as we pass from life into an eternity without Him. But we can be overcomers because we can respond to Jesus Christ. We can turn our lives over to Him. If you've never done that, you need to consider that. The prophecies in this book, the whole book, are amazing. They prove what it says about God. They prove what it says about eternity. They prove what it says about Jesus. And Jesus said he was the only way. And that no man comes to the Father but by him. What about if we are believers? Are we like the dead church in Sardis? Years ago, I don't know, Kathleen Nagy, are you here? She's not here this morning. Oh, in Israel, okay. That's why she didn't call me back. I remember Kathleen Nagy telling me we were building the bathrooms. She grew up as a little girl here and said, this church was founded as a missionary church. It was was here to reach out. And I pray to God that we still are a missionary church. That we are reaching out. And remember, the church isn't these four walls. It isn't this building. It isn't even the whole group. Well, it is the whole group. But it's each one of us. We need to reach out. We need to not say, I remember when. I remember when. God's calling us to wake up, to allow the Holy Spirit to empower us and to complete the works we began. Let's pray. God, um, help us not be dead in any way, shape, or form, if this is about actually not being believers, then you can call us and we can come back from the grave. You can wake us up. You can heal. You can restore us to spiritual life. That's what Jesus is all about. I'm just amazed at your love for us, that you've taken all these millennia to finish what you began in Genesis. God, we need to be faithful because you will come someday to finish this whole thing. Help us be busy. Thank you for being patient with us and not willing that any should perish. Help us finish the deeds you've given us.
1: Help us listen
0: to the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.